This week on the Backtable Podcast. To get back to your original point, partial versus radical, older, sicker, more complex patient, I think it really comes down to the the kind of end-stage renal disease discussion. And not to put it on the patients, but sometimes I put it on the patients. What is more scary to you? Is it dying of kidney cancer or is it dying while on dialysis? And often they will give you their perspectives on quality of life, on what their goals of care are, and that can help you guide them down the right pathway. There are patients who are rightfully so terrified of dialysis, and those are the patients you probably want to err on the side of a nephron-sparing approach or a partial nephrectomy, and there are patients who are terrified of cancer and less worried about their kidney health or kidney function. And so I think that's a very real conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Phil Piorazio from the University of Pennsylvania Department of Urology. Welcome back, Phil. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Aditya. It's great to see you again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this particular podcast, which we've been trying to get on the books now for, for some time. And in addition to talking about the management of small renal masses, it'll be nice to kind of get some of your insight as one of the panel members on the whole process. So let's just jump into it, Phil. I'm assuming in your practice, most patients are coming in with a diagnosis, you know, they had a CT scan from a car wreck or a lumbar spine MRI. And let's just talk about intake, you know, 101, when you're doing your history of present illness and so forth with patients. What are the, what are the aspects that you're kind of dialing in on? Yeah, so the mode of diagnosis is often one of the most important things you'll see. And as we know, most of these small renal masses are found incidentally. But when they're found for another reason, it's really important to note that reason. So if somebody's having another cancer worked up, or if they had an injury, or if they're undergoing a hematuria workup, which is really rare, but you will see, and that's often some of the intake as to what else is going on with their life, not necessarily what's going on with that mass. And then when you get the imaging, it's really, is this solid? Is this cystic? And as you alluded to, you know, we wrote guidelines with kind of the assumption or the direction that we're assuming most of these masses are cancer. But as you know, as an oncologist and many people know out there, most of the small renal masses we see are not cancers. Absolutely. And what about family history? Social history are your kind of highlights that you touch on with any patient with a newly diagnosed small renal mass. Yeah, I think the the three sentences I always jot in every note for these patients are no flank pain, no abdominal mass, no hematuria, and no family history of renal cell carcinoma or other renal malignancies. And those are the things you really want to think about. Kind of the obviously palpable flank mass, hematuria, those lead to locally advanced cancers. Those are the things you're thinking there. But family history certainly can play a, a role here. We know hereditary renal cell cancers are rare, but certainly when you see things running in families, it can give you a little more pause about exactly what's going on. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, maybe thinking about prostate a little bit that, you know, the explosion of genetics counsel or patients that are meet criteria for referrals to cancer genetics, for instance, is it's something that, you know, I kind of try to emphasize to the residents now when they're in clinic with me. And I actually thought it was quite nice with the most recent guidelines, you know, if they have bilateral masses, if they're young, to try to get them in to see the cancer genetics folks. It's likely going to be a low-yield test, but just something to work into our standard workflow for the management and intake of patients with small renal masses. 
Yeah, I think it's a great point. You know, if you think about hereditary renal cancers in general, it's less than 2% of renal masses, but certain things will enhance that number. As you said, multiple bilateral renal masses, the younger the age is, the guidelines emphasize 45 or 46 years old based on, you know, the best available data. It's probably only gets as high as maybe a 20% risk of having a hereditary cancer, but certainly worth exploring with patients at higher risk. And, uh, you know, of course, smoking, many of these are smoking-related cancers. Do you actually do your own um, smoking cessation counseling, or you typically try to get them in to see an expert? Yeah. As much as some people may say I'm an expert in small renal masses, I'm definitely not an expert in smoking cessation, and I defer to the experts there. So I will have the conversation with them, and I will often tell them, you know, as we get further along in the conversation, we talk about management. Yeah, we could take out your mass. We could treat this. But the thing that will affect your longevity the most is you quitting smoking. And I'm not good at it. It's not my forte, but there's certainly people who are. So let me help you get to the people who can help you. That's kind of verbatim. My extent of counseling is like the best thing I'm ever going to do is for you is probably get you to quit smoking and may- maybe lose some weight if they're obese as well. You mentioned uh, gross hematuria. And are you getting a urinalysis on all your patients coming in with the small renal mass? I do. Everybody gets a urinalysis. Everybody gets a BMP or basic metabolic panel. If they have advanced disease, you can consider a a more comprehensive metabolic panel looking for liver dysfunction. But really, the basic metabolic panel and the UA is not really for hematuria, it's for renal function. And the vast majority of patients, I'm looking at a creatinine, an estimated GFR, and you're looking for the presence of protein in their urine. Very rarely are you going to find hematuria that's actually attributable to a small renal mass. Right, right. I do think it's worth mentioning that especially if they've got a history of smoking, it's probably worth just kind of checking that box uh, and doing their cysto, completing their hematuria workup. I'm sure you've seen it and had patients, I certainly had, where along with their maybe more advanced tumor with a thrombus, et cetera, you, you scope them and, and they sure enough have a, a concomitant bladder cancer. Absolutely. So you, you kind of touched on this, that patients are getting a whole host of different things, spinal MRIs, ultrasounds for upper quadrant pain, non-contrasted CT scans looking for stones. What is your kind of preferred imaging modality when you want to have a multi-phase contrasted scan? Yeah, I think the easiest one to use is CT scan. It's easily reproducible. It's easily interpreted by the vast majority of people out there. I think it's the easiest one to work with. So quick, easy, yes, there's radiation, but you'll get the highest quality, most reproducible images, I think, at a more consistent basis. That being said, MRI is a wonderful modality. I have a very hard time if somebody shows up with a good quality MRI, asking them to get a CT scan in addition to it, even though I feel more comfortable sometimes reading a CT scan than an MRI, because an MRI is suitable and you get better. The more you read them, the better you get. And if you find a good radiologist you can work with who can kind of show you when you're confused, uh, MRI is a very reasonable modality as well. Yeah, I, I think it's nice that you mentioned being more comfortable with CT scans. I think a lot of people on the urology side are not, you know, for starters, you have your non-con, your contrasted phases, and it's kind of digestible, sometimes be a little bit tricky. I've been very lucky to work with radiologists that have a tremendous experience with MRIs and not only, you know, of course, your standard size, character, features, et cetera, but they can really give you the next level of, you know, cancer, yes, no, and if cancer, high grade, low grade with accuracies that actually approach biopsies. Yeah, Dr. Pedrosa is a pretty amazing guy at UT Southwestern, and his imaging is pretty excellent, as is ours at the University of Pennsylvania and as it was at Hopkins, you know, before I came to this institution. But it is highly experience and reader dependent. 
and you will see tremendous variability in the reading and interpretation of MRIs around the country. So I think you've got to kind of know yourself. You've got to know your colleagues. You've got to know your institution. Use the imaging modalities that's going to give you the best, most reproducible answer. Fair, fair. So, and are you getting a chest X-ray or anything to kind of check that box? Yeah. So it really depends on the mass. I think as a good oncologist, we need to stage someone's chest. The, you know, as we know, pulmonary metastasis are one of the more common locations of metastasis for renal cell cancer. The chance of pulmonary metastasis with a small renal mass is about 2% or less. So I don't think it's worth the bang for the buck of getting a chest CT scan to look for small isolated pulmonary nodules in a population we already know is elderly, maybe smokers, may have other comorbidities. I think you end up buying them a lot of benign workup for no reason, to be honest with you. But I think a chest x-ray is really important to be to check the oncologic box, make sure you've looked at their chest, you're not missing anything big, because there are, you'll see a handful a year in our practice at least, patients who show up with diffuse metastatic disease and a small renal mass, which is very different from a patient with a small renal mass and a risk of developing metastatic disease later. All right, fantastic. So I think we've talked about, you know, intake 101, patient-specific questions, imaging. Now, when we get to the guidelines, you know, of course, broad strokes, there's obtain more information with imaging, plus or minus biopsy, or move on to treatment via, via different approaches. And, and it's nuanced, right? It's hard to have this conversation or like, what are your reflex things? But maybe start out with who are the patients, both patient-wise and tumor-wise, that kind of have you on high alert, so to speak, with the small renal mass? Yeah. You know, the, the big controversy in small renal mass management is active surveillance, a durable option. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. So the things you want to think about are, or the way I think about this are, you want to think about those patient and tumor characteristics that are going to help you determine if this is a durable or reliable option. So the first thing is patient age, right? Throw comorbidities out for, for a second. If you have a 40-year-old patient, are you going to be able to watch a small renal mass for 40 or 50 years? Unlikely, no, even if we know most of these things are slow growing and, and indolent in nature. To that extent, life expectancy, right? So then you can start calculating in comorbidities. And, and in this population, the group from Fox Chase, when we were at Hopkins, we looked at similar data. Cardiovascular comorbidities are going to be your number one competitor for other cause mortality. So if someone has a number of cardiovascular comorbidities, they are much more likely to die of other disease than they are of a small renal mass those things register really highly on my radar. And then when you're looking at the tumor, bigger tumors are less likely to be watched for an extended period of time. There's been controversial data about bigger tumors growing faster than smaller tumors. I don't think you see that until you get into larger tumors, T1B and T2 tumors. So for most T1A tumors, they're going to grow slowly. So there's really no difference in growth rate between a two and a three or a three and a half centimeter tumor. But if you start closer to a four centimeter cutoff, where the majority of people are going to offer intervention at that point, the closer you start to that cut point, the more likely you are to get there. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. You know, of course, there's ends of the spectrum where things, I guess, are a little bit more straightforward. Younger patients in good health, opposite end are going to be sick or highly comorbid patients, you know, maybe towards the end of their life. Now, maybe, you know, a couple of niche scenarios in younger patients, if you see that they've got uterine fibroids, African-American ancestry, I'm talking young patients, 20s and 30s, you know, are there, so of course we send them off to see the genetic counselors. Are there other things that you're doing at the time of managing those masses? Yeah. And uh, you're getting towards the genetics again. And, and they are, it's important to remember that these are rare circumstances, but they can be profoundly impactful on patients and their 
their outcomes. You'll see, you know, for most patients with genetic syndromes, you can treat them in kind of the VHL pathway where you know they have tumors, you know they're likely to need intervention throughout their lifetime, you know the vast majority of these things are going to grow slowly, and we kind of employ that three centimeter rule, right? When they get to about three centimeters is when you're going to offer treatment. But the hereditary cancers with the really aggressive cancers are rare, but really important. And where you will see them, to your point, it's not only young women with fibroid history, but often with a early hysterectomy. So if, so if you see hysterectomy on that intake form, or it's a good question to ask young women when you see them, if they've had a hysterectomy for fibroids in their 20s or 30s, that can be a real indication of something more aggressive going on. Often these renal tumors will not be completely solid. They will actually have a cystic component. So in those patients, sometimes they'll come to you with a cyst or suspicion of a cyst. I will always confirm that with multiple modalities. So if they show up with a CT scan, get an MRI or an ultrasound, you really want to rule out that this is not a solid mass masquerading as a cyst. Often these tumors, and we're talking about basically fumarate hydratase tumors, they're often papillary in nature. So on a CT scan where you have kind of modeling or, or you can have some artifact that will make them appear cystic when they truly are a solid mass underlying. Right, right. And and you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think it's this clinical scenario, maybe not your VHL, but your other more aggressive phenotypes where, you know, the things that I'm thinking in my mind is I'm going to do a lymph node dissection, whether I do a partial or radical nephrectomy. And if I'm going to do a partial, I'm not going to nucleate it. It'll be a formal partial nephrectomy. They're kind of fringe scenarios, but I think we've all had a handful of these folks that you do see lymph node metastases and sometimes these tumors can have a prolonged local regional phase and, you know, maybe you can help them. Agreed completely. So question, when you, when you see a Bosniak lesion three, four, does that get you excited or, or does that kind of, you're like, all right, this is one that's not really that dangerous. Yeah. The cysts are a great conversation. And I think we've learned over the years that most cysts are benign and even cystic renal cell carcinomas tend to be really indolent. So I don't get worked up over Bosniak threes or fours. And the way I explain it to patients are, we don't get so much worried about the size like we do with a solid mass. We get more worried about the complexity. And obviously the more complex a mass is, the higher it goes up on that Bosniak scale. And what we're really worried about are solid masses masquerading as cysts rather than even cystic masses with a small solid component. We know that most cystic renal cell cancers are not dangerous people are highly unlikely to die from them. They're really low-grade tumors in general, and they behave that way. But there are these mimickers that you kind of brought up before, like a hereditary, you know, lyomatomous renal cell carcinoma that can be really aggressive and look like a cyst. And so one thing I do when I have a three or a four, radiologists will argue with me, but I'll change modality. Um, if the initial scan was a CT, I'll get an MRI next one. Or if it was an MRI, I'll get a CT or an ultrasound Mixing modalities gives you extra confirmation that you're truly dealing with a cyst or a cystic mass versus a solid mass. And then you can go back to your more consistent imaging. I feel the exact same way. I mean, Bosnian threes and fours usually are at the end, one end of the spectrum of the ones that I get pretty excited about. And I was a little bit surprised, you know, in the, in the guidelines that Bosnian three fours and solid renal masses were kind of lumped together in management. I think it's whether it's assist associated RCC in a patient with perfectly good renal function or even cystic associated RCCs in patients with severe chronic kidney disease on dialysis. Those are not tumors that I get particularly excited about. I mean, of course, we follow them, treat them when necessary, et cetera, but it seems like I'm hearing something similar. 
Yeah, and I think part of that, you got to realize that the guidelines, when written, have to reflect the best available literature, especially AUA guidelines. And while most of us who treat renal cancers and renal cysts and renal tumors on a regular basis don't get too excited about Bosniak 3s or 4s, the literature, it's really difficult to parse out those cystic masses from solid renal masses in a lot of the literature. And so the best available science and evidence, you kind of have to lump them in together because that's what most studies do. Now, there are really good data from the University of Toronto and other kind of emerging groups that are really pulling out the cysts and looking at threes and fours and, and showing that they're indolent, but it does not meet the level of evidence that supports the studies looking at solid renal masses. And as you know, for decades, we treated threes, fours, and solid renal masses the same. Okay. So let's talk, talk about biopsies. Who are you getting biopsies in? Yeah. So I am a judicious utilizer of biopsy. I like biopsies in kind of uh, three distinct areas. I like them when you're unsure what the correct management option is. And that can be either you're not sure if this is a cancer or you're not sure if it's an aggressive cancer. You want some help from tumor biology or it's a tumor in a tough location. You're not sure partial versus radical. I think we're much more comfortable removing a kidney for a cancer, even if it's a low-grade indolent cancer than we are for a benign tumor. The second circumstance is for small renal mass patients on surveillance. There are a growing number of groups that biopsy everybody up front, and I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but that's just not the way we do it, or, or I believe it. I think the vast majority of patients can be watched first, and so we put our patients on surveillance. If their tumors grow or cross a size threshold, I think that's a great time to biopsy a patient. That way you can often distinguish oncocytomas, which are fast-growing but benign masses from some of the more aggressive clear cell histologies, for instance. And then the last circumstance, because biopsy has gotten so much easier, so much safer, low risk of complications, low risk of tumor seeding can be done in an office under sedation. Any patient who wants more information, I will never refuse them a biopsy. I think we can certainly provide more information if somebody wants it. It doesn't often change our management in the vast majority of patients. So that's why we don't routinely offer it, but I would never turn a patient away from a biopsy who wanted one. Totally. And I think, you know, that first kind of three, six month interval scans to get a little bit of information, you know, maybe as you mentioned, you go from a CT scan to an MRI or vice versa, you're picking up some additional information and using it as a bit of a stratifier filter instead of reflexively biopsying kind of is pretty reasonable. And for sure, you know, if it's kind of a oddball mass, very central, high probability of a radical, I think a biopsy is, is kind of nice just to make sure you're, you're not going to lop out somebody's kidney for something benign ultimately. And what are your, your size thresholds for either treatment or biopsy in a patient on surveillance? Yeah. So I know I'm a little heretical with this statement, but I, I really believe that two centimeters and less, nobody needs an operation immediately. It doesn't mean you shouldn't operate on some people who have tumors less than two centimeters, but nobody needs an operation immediately. I think the literature is really clear here that the risk of metastatic progression and metastatic disease in a tumor less than two centimeters is much less than 1% and really approaches 0%. Depending on age, comorbidities, life expectancy, et cetera, I basically draw cutoffs at two centimeters, three centimeters, and four centimeters. And basically your metastatic risk increases slightly at each cutoff. So if you look at the plethora of data from a number of institutions around the country, around the world, less than 1% at two centimeters, about one to 2% for a three centimeter tumor. And then as soon as you cross over that threshold for four centimeters, the risk of metastatic disease increases to five or 
10% as tumors get larger. And those are the numbers I use to counsel patients. So for a young, healthy patient, once that tumor hits three centimeters, you say, well, listen, your risk of developing metastatic disease is still incredibly low, but why would we wait until four centimeters when we're going to potentially double your risk of developing or dying of metastatic disease? Let's not wait. Let's treat it now where we know we can still cure you. For somebody who's a little bit older and sicker, we may say, listen, one to 2% versus 5% where you have a 10 to 15% risk of dying of something else in the next five to 10 years is not a terribly bad calculation. And so that may change the size threshold for that patient. So in general, most surgical patients were using a three centimeter cutoff or somewhere in that range. We may extend that criteria for patients who are older or who have comorbidities, putting them at risk of dying of something else. Agreed and agreed. I mean, three centimeters just evoke so many emotions when it comes to talking about small renal masses. Yeah, absolutely. You know, older, sicker patients, octogenarians, multiple comorbidities. I think we've all kind of pushed it into five, six centimeters. And, you know, I feel like I've heard Bob Uzo give some pretty cool talks on how the whole paradigm of active surveillance was actually pushed by a patient when they started doing things at Fox Chase. So I hear you. It's not going to be a one-size-shoe-fits-all so, you know, I think so much of our three centimeter data experience comes from the VHL population, which again is going to be, you know, a small minority of patients, but broad strokes, uh, I'd like to hear your approach to VHL patients. Yeah, I think, as you said, you know, we have a variety of data sources for that three centimeter rule, but the best data by far is from the VHL population and the VHL literature is now supported not only by clinical data, but by genetic data by, you know, obviously Marston Linehan, Mark Ball, the crew at the NCI, who's been studying this extensively now for decades. And I really adhere to the three centimeter rule. And we know for VHL related tumors, they're going to be clear cell renal cell carcinoma the vast majority of the time. They're going to grow incredibly slowly. So if I know someone's VHL where a sporadic tumor, we may watch every six months or so for the first year or two, VHL patients right away, you can start following them once a year. You know that they are highly unlikely to have any dramatic growth rates within that period. We also want to minimize their testing, their imaging, radiation exposure, all of that stuff, because they're going to require it for the rest of their life. The other part of this is recognizing there are definitely different VHL phenotypes. So you'll see families who develop a lot of renal tumors. You'll see families who develop pancreatic tumors. And you just need to be aware of kind of what that family trajectory is too, because it'll tell you how closely you need to watch their kidneys or their adrenals or their pancreas or whatever else is related. But in terms of surgical management, I adhere pretty strictly to the three centimeter rule. Once the biggest tumor hits three centimeters in one of the kidneys, basically go in and clear out everything visible in that kidney. For the vast majority of patients prefer to do that robotically, even in redo surgeries. That wasn't always my practice when I first started and I was a little more worried about losing kidneys. I, I would make more incisions and really cool kidneys down and, and worry about prolonged warm ischemia and things like that and damaging kidneys. As I've become more proficient with kidney surgery and kidney tumors, I do the vast majority of these robotically. I'm not a huge fan of enucleation and I don't know if you want to go there today, but this is the one patient group where I think enucleation makes a ton of sense. We know these tumors are typically well encapsulated. We know they're very often low grade three centimeters or less. And so I think a nucleation makes a ton of sense. It makes the operation technically more feasible. You're less likely to lose blood. You can do a lot of the tumors off clamp to save an ischemia time. And I think it's a, the goal for these patients is really prolonging their renal function more than it is worried about cancer outcomes. 
Yeah. And, you know, three centimeters, of course, also has implications on ablation. And, you know, one of my mentors and teachers who I really respect, Jeff Cadeta, who's been a pioneer in ablation, you know, recognizing, of course, limitations with heat sink, et cetera. I mean, maybe use IRE for those scenarios. But, you know, on the one hand, we kind of heard exactly what you described. Once one hit three centimeters, you go in and do a clean out. Then as things start kind of bubbling back up, you ablate. Before they get to three centimeters, right, where you start having a drop off in efficacy. And then once you're done kind of ablating, then you kind of pull the trigger and the kidneys in the bucket. And, you know, now you're starting that whole process. And Jeff, I haven't really asked him if this has evolved or changed, but he was in a ablate, ablate, ablate until you can't ablate anymore, then partial nephrectomize. And when you can't do that anymore, then the kidney comes out. Um, you know, of course, it's patient-specific, anatomy-specific, but I always thought it was a, you know, at least moderately compelling way to think about these patients. Yeah, I think it's a very reasonable approach, too, and, and it kind of is analogous to the MRI conversation we were having before. Jeff Kadedu, UT Southwestern, amazing teams at Ablation, ton of experience, really good at what they do, as was the crew at Hopkins, as is the crew here at Penn, but I think it's also center-specific and provider specific. And you want to work with someone who has a lot of experience ablating these tumors. And to your point, the literature is very clear, three centimeters or less ablation is a wonderful technique for ablating the vast majority of renal masses, but not all renal masses are amenable to ablation, right? There are some tumors that are more ideal to ablation. I guess we could say peripheral, you know, away from hyalur structures, make them definitely more amenable to ablation. I have tended to go the opposite way of Jeff, and that's not to say that he's wrong or I'm right. I may be wrong and Jeff's often right, but I've tended to do partial nephrectomy. Once the redo partial nephrectomy has gotten too challenging or it's, it's too many tumors, then move to ablation. And then kind of when surgery is no longer an option, then the kidney ends up in, in the bucket. I agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of thinking back to your comments about uh, management of masses, you know, up to about three centimeters, you're, you're okay watching them. And I always kind of struggle as they start hitting, you know, 26, 27, 28 millimeters where I'm like, well, good goodness, I could just pull the trigger on an ablation. I mean, of course you could do a partial, but say it's a older patient, maybe on an anticoagulation or whatever, not the ideal surgical cannon, not a catastrophe. But I mean, who knows, it's 3.1 versus 2.9. Does that really matter? But if they pop up to 3.4 centimeters over the course of the last, you know, six months or a year then perhaps you've you've missed that window or now you're looking at repeat ablations. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think, you know, once again, to get to guidelines, this is where guidelines struggle because this is really nuanced management. And I will tell you that I agree with you completely. And there are certainly, when you're counseling a patient and you're thinking that their number one option for management is going to be ablation, I may not wait for three centimeters, as, just as you allude to. Right. If you know somebody who's older or sicker, or not even older, sicker, but say they're on anticoagulation for whatever reason, it's much safer and easier to do an ablation at two or two and a half centimeters than it is to wait till they get to three and a half and or four centimeters and doing a partial nephrectomy where you know ablation has less efficacy or a higher risk of complications. So yeah, I agree with you. These are these are nuanced conversations. You got to think about each patient and each tumor individually. There's no way to lump everyone into the same guideline-based bucket, but exactly as I say, they're guidelines. They help kind of point you in the right direction. What about younger patients in ablation? I don't love ablation in younger patients. It's the same kind of thing. You know, if they're two centimeters, three centimeters or less, 
The data is very clear. The oncologic efficacy is equivalent. It may take multiple ablations to get them to the same treatment. It may take two ablations rather than one partial nephrectomy. But the way I, I often kind of think about it is get the right operation rather than the easier one. And if somebody's a surgical candidate, I think a partial nephrectomy, I mean, we all have our biases, but I think it's the preferred management strategy for the majority of these small renal masses. At least one caveat to that are patients who have sub two centimeter endophytic tumors. I actually think we can have a really challenging time doing them robotically, even with a good ultrasound machine in the operating room, sometimes finding that, that tumor and really doing nephron sparing, right? You end up sometimes cutting out a lot more kidney than you would want to, where good interventional radiologists with a contrast enhanced imaging, whether they're going to use CT MRI or even contrast enhanced ultrasound can often nail that endophytic mass and do a much more reliable job sometimes than we can robotically. Yeah, I remember, you know, over the course of at least a decade of M&Ms for these very small endophytic tumors, sometimes it's worthwhile even getting a preoperative ultrasound just to make sure you can find that little fella in the operating room and not have a stressful experience. And I totally agree. You know, you kind of alluded to a high quality interventional radiologist. Um, one of the things that I always admired, I kind of share your biases in terms of partial nephrectomy. I think in the right patient, which is oftentimes determined by me. I'll bring up ablation if I think it's a good option. But one of the things I've always admired is when urologists and interventional radiologists that you do the procedures together. Because it's inconvenient. It You know, you're working around another team's schedule. You're not doing your cases. And, you know, even though it's completely secondary, tertiary, the billing isn't ultra favorable. It is still your patient. And not to say that, you know, the interventional radiologist is just doing a procedure to move on to the next one. But I think just having that extra set of eyes, that QC to make sure that the ablation goes perfectly. I mean, A, requires expertise and time, but that's the way it's been done historically in the institutions that I've been at. And um, I think it's reflected in the outcomes. Yeah, I think you're right. I think practically that poses a lot of challenges for a number of practices. But yeah, in, in the ideal world, that's a great way to do it. Now, you'd mentioned enucleation versus resection, and you know now there's enucleoresections, and, and part of me is like, this is, I don't know, just kind of fun urologic oncology academia. My kind of take on it is it's going to be delicate tissue handling, making sure you don't rupture the tumor, assessing you know if it's got a thick capsule, four millimeters thick, and, and it's just kind of shelling out, and you cauterize a base. It's fine. You know, oftentimes I think it's actually your chromophobes that'll that'll pop up that don't have an enucleation plane and that can be a longer day at the office. So my take on it without like coming through the data, which is gonna lead to margin rates and so forth. I mean, of course you should I think obtain negative surgical margins is assess what's going on in real time, handle the tumor carefully, and you know, try to minimize ischemia. But I know that's kind of broad, but anything to add on that, Phil? Yeah. You know, nobody intentionally cuts into a tumor or leaves a positive margin, but those rates certainly are higher with a nucleation. It's not because people are bad people or bad surgeons. It's just because that's the nature of the tumor and it's really hard to predict what you're going to get. So when I teach this operation with our residents and fellows, I teach there's partial nephrectomy and there's nephron sparing surgery, even though really it's a little bit of semantics. Partial nephrectomy is the patient with two healthy kidneys and a normal GFR who's got a small renal mass that we just that we're not going to take out their entire kidney. We're going to treat just the tumor. And in those patients, 
there's lots of arguments that taking out one, two, or even five millimeters of normal parenchyma is not going to make a long-term difference in their renal function. The EORTC study, the Van Poppel study, partial versus radical, there were no difference in the long-term renal functional outcomes in healthy patients who had two healthy kidneys going into the operating room, half of which had an entire kidney removed versus those who had a partial nephrectomy. That being said, that identifies the important caveats. So patients who don't have two normal kidneys, patients who have pre-existing chronic kidney disease, patients who have multiple bilateral tumors, patients who have familial syndromes, these are patients who are at higher risk of developing chronic kidney disease and times where we should consider nephron sparing surgery, which is kind of the way I teach the semantics to, as I said, residents and fellows, really think about maximally sparing parenchyma rather than your oncologic outcomes. And so those are the patients I will consider a nucleation in. I don't do it in all patients, but I certainly will consider it in those patients. They've got to have good capsule. You've got to be able to adjust your margin status kind of in real time in the operating room because it's not a big deal to explain a difference in GFR of one, two, five, or even 10 points, but it's really hard and challenging, not only to explain to a patient, but to manage a patient postoperatively who's got a high grade positive margin. And it's very rare that we know that going into the operating room or even coming out of the operating room. So I, first and foremost, if we're in the operating room, we're there for cancer. This is a cancer operation. Make sure you clear your margins. And then everything else is of secondary consideration, in my opinion. Totally right. It's an oncological operation first. And you mentioned EURTC, which, you know, of course, is, I think, also fun to talk about at multiple different levels. But older, sicker patients, complex, partial, or a in and out radical? What's your general kind of philosophy? Oh, this is a tough one. We just had this debate last week in our uh, indications conference. We're all biased by what we do and what we do on a regular basis. I think if you have a patient, and this is not a hard cutoff, but in general, patients who are over 75 years old with a GFR above 45 are unlikely to progress to end-stage renal disease and dialysis in the remainder of their lifetime. That gives a little bit of guidance. And I think you really just have to look at the patient and say, what is their chance? What are their underlying risk factors that's giving them CKD? How likely are they going to progress through a medical CKD route to end-stage renal disease and dialysis versus, you know, what is the risk of this cancer in this operation? And realistically, you can make the argument, if someone shouldn't be in the operating room, then watch them. Even at four, five, six, seven centimeters, we briefly touched on active surveillance on the larger tumors later, but even at six centimeters, the chance of having a high grade or locally advanced tumor is only 10%. That sounds really high to you or I who are healthy and have kids and, you know, it is high and that's a risk we're not willing to take. But if you're 75 years old and you've got serious comorbidities and you're worried about anesthetic risks, then uh, you could consider surveillance in that patient. So to get back to your original point, partial versus radical, older, sicker, more complex patient, I think it really comes down to the, the kind of end-stage renal disease discussion and not to put it on the patients, but sometimes I put it on the patients. What is more scary to you? Is it dying of kidney cancer or is it dying while on dialysis? And often they will give you their perspectives on quality of life, on what their goals of care are, and that can help you guide them down the right pathway. There are patients who are rightfully so terrified of dialysis and those are the patients you probably want to err on the side of a nephron sparing approach or a partial nephrectomy. And there are patients who are terrified of cancer and less worried about their kidney health or kidney function. And so I think that's a very real conversation. Totally. And I mean, I think uh, the way I think about it, of course, you know, there's patient specific factors, the renal function outcomes, and then the tumor. 
you know, if it's something exophytic and amenable and they've, they've got a reasonable life expectancy, I don't think EORTC is an out to do a radical on everybody and just kind of convince yourself that you're doing the right thing. But in the same breath, I think ultra complex partials with risks of leaks, pseudoaneurysms, you know, all the kind of things that make for a long course for the patient can really take a toll, especially as reserve goes down. So maybe it's not always the right thing to do a heroic partial for a central high nephrometry score tumor. Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but very few patients die of partial nephrectomy, but they will die of the complications of a partial nephrectomy. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fair. It's fair. You know, one thing uh, I, I meant to ask you earlier when you mentioned we don't like to do kidney surgery on benign masses. And of course I agree. And I was just kind of reflecting, I don't have my, my exact data in front of me. Like I can't think of many patients that I've done surgeries on for benign masses. And I think it's this combination of imaging, multidisciplinary teams, taking a little bit of a deep breath, following things for a bit of time before jumping in. Do you have any opinions on that, Phil? Yeah, I think... You know, this is where we see some of the discrepancies between institutional data and large population-based data. I think most centers of excellence and providers who treat a lot of kidney tumors and kidney masses really are more adept at avoiding surgery for cysts, avoiding tumors for benign masses like angiomyolipomas and oncocytomas. It doesn't mean that rate should be 0%, but if you look at the population-based data, it's still in the range of 20 to 30% of people getting kidney surgery are getting it for benign masses. And there's really nothing, not nothing wrong, but listen, a well-done partial nephrectomy that doesn't have a complication that removes a benign mass, you could argue is a high-quality biopsy, right? But when you lose a kidney or you have complications, it becomes almost a never event. And I think one of the things we'll see in the next five to 10 years in kidney cancer quality care is going to be measuring the number of benign tumors that are removed and the number of radical nephrectomies performed for benign masses. And once again, it shouldn't be 0%. It's never going to be 0%, but it shouldn't be high either. And we'll figure out what the correct benchmarks are and how to measure these things moving forward. Totally. I think we've seen you know major progress in both of those. You could say maybe inappropriate use of radical nephrectomies or inappropriate surgical management. Inappropriate is a bit of a loaded term here. And you've done some work on like Sestamibi scans. Are, are those a part of your algorithm now? They are. I think they're a huge part. They're a really nice non-invasive way to look at people you have high suspicion of oncocytomas for. So these can be tumors that just radiographically appear like they have a large central scar. Sestamibi is completely appropriate there. Sometimes in a patient, we talked about indications for biopsy before or times when I would use biopsy. Sometimes in those patients, you want to offer them a non-invasive approach. Say, listen, we could do a biopsy or we could try this nuclear medicine test first. It's pretty cheap. It's a very easy test in most centers. Once again, the biggest barrier or boundary to widespread use of Sestamibi is experience. They're not the easiest scans to read and you have to look at a lot of them and you have to know which tumors were benign and which tumors were cancerous kind of on the back end. So it's kind of a continuous quality project to make sure that you're reading them well and reading them well with the radiologist. But I think the data is now clear that a hot Sestamibi scan is, or one that lights up brightly, is highly indicative of an oncocytoma or a benign oncocytic tumor. Now remember, this test is not designed to pick out cancer. It's designed to pick out a benign tumor. And so all of the statistics are based around predicting of benign disease. So if you have a hot MIBI or a bright Sestamibi scan, you're very likely to have an oncocytoma or benign mass. 
It doesn't necessarily mean if you're cold that you're 100% guaranteed to have cancer. Remember, it doesn't work. You know, it's not dichotomous like that. But I think it's a very powerful test. And even now, I think the more robust data is if you combine Sestamibi with a biopsy, you are extremely likely with almost 95% certainty or better to know what the histology is before you go into the operating room. I think it's great. And I think it's going to be, you know, of course, oncocytomas make up a small fraction of the um, small renal masses, period. But much of, I think, the future is going to be trying to sort out these relatively lower probability events, like who's a patient with a small renal mass that's actually got some very aggressive biology. And, you know, maybe as we approach 45 minutes, you know, what are you most excited about over the next five or 10 years as it pertains to small renal masses, whether it's the science or population health implementation of quality metrics, what kind of gets you excited? Yeah, there are two things that get me excited. And the first is improved diagnostics. And I think the Sestamibi scan is a great segue into that. Sestamibi is a great test. I don't think it's necessarily the long-term answer here. I think there will be additional molecular imaging that will likely really help us in the diagnosis and management of renal tumors. There's already ongoing trials, CA9, which is kind of the clear cell renal cell carcinoma molecular kind of byproduct. There's lots of agents out there now that are being investigated to study that. There's potentially the ability to use dual tracers. So something like a CA9 molecule and a Sestamibi in the same setting for a patient can help you in the same scan differentiate benign from malignant. So I think molecular imaging and other diagnostics, and what I say by other diagnostics, I think the holy grail is a urine test. We're working on ways to either detect directly or indirectly in the urine, whether someone has benign, indolent, or aggressive renal cell cancer. I hope that that's the future. Wouldn't it be nice to just do a simple urine test? Not only if somebody shows up with a mass to tell them what they have, but then potentially at a population base level screen patients with a, with a urine test. That's one way we actually really could impact mortality in kidney cancer. And then the second thing I'm more personally interested in is kind of quality metrics and quality outcomes in kidney cancer. You know, for years, we've talked about things like blood loss and ischemia time and length of stay, which are important metrics, but probably have little long-term impact on patient care and management of the disease. And so I think Myself, others around the country are really trying to work on, define, and decide what are the important quality metrics. Like you said, is it radical nephrectomies for benign tumors? Yeah, that probably is a, an important quality metric. We just need to find out what the right numbers are and how do we work through these things. Yeah, I totally share your sentiments. I think, you know, it's pretty exciting with machine learning, artificial intelligence. You've got an MRI that's got 6 million bits of information and you know, put that together with histopathology, put that together with some molecular diagnostics, I mean, non-invasive blood-based markers as well, you know, without getting too futuristic. We talked a little bit about sapiens and homo deus, which I think you're reading. Imagine a nanobot that's kind of screening for 3P-associated VHL type of mutation. As soon as one pops up, your iPhone pings and it's time to go see your local X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it's a crazy thing to think about but it's also probably not outside of the, the realm of possibilities. And then also I think, you know, biopsies. I'm kind of with you on judicious use. And even as a research tool, you know, I think to get biopsies along with longitudinal, good, high-quality clinical and radiographic data, maybe start picking up who's got that, you know, nasty underlying low allele frequency mutation that could potentially act up down the way. But this is, this is great. You know, I think there's just a wealth of information. I think absolutely. And, you know, the last thing I'll just kind of mention when you talked about ischemia times, preservation of normal parenchyma, cold versus hot. Like in my relatively short career, various iterations of nephrometry scores, 
I mean, I think these have all been massively important and just to kind of elevate the field, bring partial nephrectomy at the forefront, of course, is still a relatively newer operation. I think the first ones were in the early 90s, but so much of it does seem almost very, very incremental and trivial. And it was necessary, but now we really can spend our, you know, brain space on what are the most critical, you know, broad strokes things that that are going to affect patients. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I mean, I think you look at the evolution of the management of kidney cancer care over the last 30 years, right? We saw an explosion in small renal masses. We saw the emergence of partial nephrectomy. Now we're seeing, I wouldn't even say widespread acceptance yet, but at least the acceptance of active surveillance and recognizing that most of these tumors are not dangerous. I think the future is really exciting in this disease. If you look down the metastatic pathways, we're seeing all kinds of drug development and therapeutic agents for a disease that had no active agents 10, 15 years ago. So I think this is an incredibly exciting field. I think we're gonna see some tremendous changes in the management of kidney tumors and kidney cancers in the next 10, 15 years. Well, fantastic, Phil. Uh, Always a pleasure to have you and hope the transition to Philly has been smooth and until next time. Likewise. 